morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7am Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel are really difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we are very lucky to hear all the way from my one of my favorite cities, Denver, uh, David Heska Wandley Wyden, who is going to share the first pages of his incredible novel, Winter Counts. Good morning, David. Good morning. Thank you so much for being on the show. David Heska Wandley Wyden, an enrolled citizen of the Chicago Lakota Nation, is an author of Winter Counts, which was nominated for an Edgar Award for Best First Novel. The book was also winner of the Anthony Thriller, Lefty, Barry, McCavity, Spur, High Plains, and people, I could keep going on and on with that list. <laughs> Um, you can see it in the podcast notes, but the big list of, of wins for the novel. And he was also long listed for a whole other huge list of wins. So I would really check this book out. His short stories and essays have also appeared in numerous anthologies and magazines. He is also the F-series editor of Native Edge, an imprint of the University of New Mexico Press specializing in, in indigenous literature. He's received a Pen American Writing Award for uh, Justice Fellowship. He's professor of Native American Studies and Political Science at Metropolitan State University of Denver and serves on the faculty of the Cedar Crest Pan-European MFA program and also the Mile High MFA program at Regis University. So he's a busy guy. Um, he lives in Denver. He also has kids. <laughs> so, David, I don't know how you do it. Um, but you're doing incredible work, and I'm just so very glad that we have time to have you with us. Okay, if you can give a, us a quick summary of the book, and then we're going to get his whole first chapter, um, which is just five pages, but I really wanted him to read the whole chapter. Well, first of all, I'll just briefly say that it's my honor to be here, and thank you for having me. Let me give you a very quick summary of the book to uh, listeners and viewers. Um, in, a, in a brief nutshell, Winter Counts is a literary thriller. It is the story of a hired vigilante, Virgil Wounded Horse, who works on the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota. And it is a tale of his identity and also his efforts to stop heroin from being brought in to the Rosebud Reservation. So with that, that is the briefest of summaries. I'm going to start right away. Here is chapter one of Winter Counts. I leaned back in the seat of my old Ford Pinto, listening to the sounds coming from the depot, the reservation's only tavern. There was a stream of Indians and white ranchers going inside. I knew Gov Yellowhawk was there with his buddies, drinking beers and pounding shots. Gov taught Jim at the local school, football, basketball, soccer. But word was, he sometimes got a little too involved with his students, both boys and girls. I was going to let him get good and drunk. Then the real party would start. I had brass knuckles and a baseball bat stowed in my trunk, but those wouldn't be necessary. Gov was a fat ass piece of shit with a fry bread gut as big as a buffalo's ass. I'd been hired to beat the hell out of Gov by the father of a little girl at the school. Gov had sneaked up on the girl in the bathroom, held her down, and raped her. The girl's parents had confronted the school's principal, but Gov came from one of the most powerful families on the res, and the school refused to take any action. 
The principal had even threatened a lawsuit against the parents for making a false accusation. The tribal police couldn't do anything. The feds prosecuted all felony crimes on the res, and they didn't mess with any crime short of murder. Now, the little girl was too scared to go back to her class, and Gov was free to molest other kids. I'd waived my fee for this job. Usually, I charged a hundred bucks for each tooth I knocked out and each bone I broke, but I decided to kick Gov's ass for free. I'd hated him for years. Even as a teenager, he was a mean asshole who terrorized other kids, especially Ayeskas like me. Of course, Gov had always been accompanied by his gang. I couldn't remember him ever fighting solo, but tonight was his time. The stones, gimme shelter, drifted through the door of the bar to the parking lot, leaving little melodic ripples like ghosts in my head. I lit a cigarette and waited for him. He'd come out sooner or later. In about an hour, I spotted him walking out of the bar. He was singing an off-key tune and stumbling. I slipped out of the Pinto and crouched behind his shiny new pickup. He'd parked at the far end of the lot so no one would ding his expensive ride. That suited me just fine. I could enact some Indian justice away from any of Gov's drinking buddies. I moved out from the shadows. He wore faded jeans and a t-shirt with a fighting Sioux mascot. His eyes were foggy and he stank of beer. I could see the birthmark on his forehead that looked like a little tomahawk. Hey, Gov. The fuck? He squinted into the darkness, unable to pinpoint who was speaking to him. Is Virgil. Who? Virgil Wounded Horse. Oh, are you drinking or what? The, the bar just closed. Yeah, I know it closed. I was waiting for you. What for? Grace Little Thunder. Gov's face darkened. Ain't seen her. That's not what I hear. I take care of the Wakanaja. Show them how to be Lakota. Sometimes the parents don't appreciate it. The way of the world, huh? I move between Gov and the truck. I teach the kids, help their families. Sometimes they want more than I can give. St. Gov, just a guy. A guy who likes to cornhole the boys and finger the girls. You know how kids are. They want attention. They make shit up. People make a fuss over them. The other kids making shit up too? I heard about you and little Joey Dupree. Gov tried to move past me. I don't need this bullshit. I ain't seen you out there helping the Oyate. From what I hear, you don't do nothing. You got shit to say. Take it up with Principal Smith. I'm getting out of here. Don't think so. Look, asshole, Grace Little Thunder's family is nothing but trash. Her mom's a drunk, and her dad ain't worked in years. That girl is only nine years old. Eat shit. What business is it of yours? I landed a hard body shot to Gov's midsection. The punch would have knocked most men over, but his massive stomach absorbed most of the blow. A yeska motherfucker, he snarled and lunged at me. I saw the move coming, sidestepped it, and smashed him in the jaw. He shook his head like a wet dog. How the fuck was he still standing up? I thought about grabbing the baseball bat, but then I felt a blinding pain in my side. A blow to the kidney, then another, this one worse than the first. Waves of electricity, neural impulses. Gotta stay up, don't go down or it's finished. Reeling. Dizzy, I tried to puzzle out a strategy, but my mind was like an iceberg, slowly bobbing in the waters. You half-breed bastard, he roared. I felt his spittle on my face, and then I was on the ground. Shit, he kicked me in the back, over and over, each blow a jackhammer. 
I tried to maneuver through the cloud in my brain. Gov panted, out of breath, running out of gas. Grab his feet, I thought. I snaked out my arm and yanked his legs. He went down with a thud, and I saw my opening. I stood up, grabbed his right arm, and twisted it behind his back until I met some resistance. Then I twisted some more. How you like that, you son of a bitch, I said. He looked up at me and hissed. Fuck you, Haffy. I had to hand it to him. Gov had some balls. I flashed back to high school when I'd been much smaller, not the big guy I was now. I remembered all the times I'd been held down and beaten by Gov and the other Fullbloods, my angry tears, the humiliation still with me. I wondered if I should let Gov go, show him the mercy that I'd never been given. That was the Lakota way, wasn't it? Wachan Tognaka, one of the seven Lakota values. It meant compassion, generosity, kindness, forgiveness. I remembered the lessons from my teachers back at school. They taught that the greatest honor, the greatest bravery came when a warrior chose to let his enemy go free and touched him instead with the coup stick. Legend was that even Crazy Horse had shown his courage by counting coup on a Pawnee warrior once, chasing him across the river, but deciding not to kill him, to honor his bravery and grant him his freedom. I knew that the honorable thing to do, the Lakota way, was to set Gov free without any more punishment. Fuck that. I twisted his arm until it came loose from the socket with a sickening crunch. Then I stepped back and kicked him in the cheek with all my force, snapping his head back violently. I took my boot heel and smashed it down on his face, teeth snapping like stale potato chips. I leaned down and grabbed his hair. Listen to me, you goddamn scumbag. You ever touch another kid at that school, I'll cut your dick off and shove it down your throat. You hear me, skin? He didn't say anything. His left eye was swollen and bloody, and his nose, seemingly gone, pounded back into his face. Blood streamed. From the, from the black hole of his former nose and mouth. How's that for counting, coup, asshole? I leaned over to see if he was still breathing. A few faint breaths. I saw some teeth lying on the concrete. They looked like little yellow tombstones. I scooped them up and stuck them in my pocket. Excellent, excellent. If I remember correctly, I read this book when it first came out. Um, those teeth stay with him, right? The teeth stay with him. That's right. And he sticks them in his pocket and, and they, they, uh, reappear later in the conclusion of the book, which is pretty amazing. You are maybe the only person that has ever caught that in the hundreds of interviews that I have done. And I'm not kidding. Wow. Wow. Okay. I read the book maybe two years ago. Yeah. And I, I, I said, oh, there are the teeth. <laughs> that's great uh, so, no i think they they stand for so much now um were these always did you always begin the book here were these always your first pages your first choice of c they, they were um so this was originally a short story so uh, a long time ago when i was a, an mfa student um i wrote a short story also called winter counts and that story was a lot rougher and uh, virgil wasn't fully developed yet, but I did start it with that fight scene. And um, in, in the short story, Virgil dies at the end because it was a crime noir story where the, the hero has to come to a bad end. Um, but over you know a, a period of years, I decided that I really liked this character and I, I needed to put some more thought into him and really develop him, make him a whole complete character. But I knew that those first pages 
uh, kind of set the tone for the rest of the book. They showed his violence, his brutality, uh, you know, but also his his sense of honor, his his code of ethics. He doesn't like the fact that this guy is raping kids. I mean, who would like that? But he's willing to do something about it. Um, so so I, I yes, I never seriously considered uh, changing the uh, first few pages. I did tone some of the violence back a bit, and I also took out some of the profanity, um, which you may find that surprising given that it's fairly profane, but it was considerably more on first draft. Now, did you do that because you decided to do that, or did other readers or your agent and editor have you do that? Um, I'm going to be honest here. There was a word in there that is a Lakota word for an LGBT person that Virgil used. And, um, and I just wasn't comfortable with that word. I thought about it. Um, and, and I, I didn't think that that word added anything substantial to the chapters, but I thought that it might cause a reader out there some grief or pain that even if that slur would be used, you know, even, you know, even in a moment of violence, I, I, I said, you know, there, there's just not, this is not necessary. Yeah. And, and so I inserted the word scumbag <laughs> so <laughs> so there you go i think that's the first time i've ever uh described that particular little edit that i made i mean and so what i love is that yeah this this book this this scene absolutely announces what the book is going to be so if you don't like this scene then this book might not be your book right. um, and so but it sets the tone there is violence here but at the same time um okay you know he's an enforcer He's going after this guy, but there is good reason for him to go after this guy. And it's also not an easy fight. So there's some vulnerability there. Um, he himself has been abused by this guy. So even though we don't might not necessarily ourselves agree with his actions, might not necessarily ourselves beat someone up and take all their teeth out. Um, we understand the compulsion to do it. Um, and sometimes maybe we wished we had done it. Um, so I think we are, we are right there with him. Um, and I think it works really well. So I also wondered, um, so did you always have the narrator's voice um, right from the get-go? Um, again, I, I tinkered with it a little bit. I mean, that <clears throat> that short story is still floating around. It was published in Yellow Medicine Review. They don't publish it online. It's a journal of, of indigenous writing. <clears throat> you can find the hard copy somewhere. And if somebody really wanted to track it down, they could see the considerably rougher Virgil Wounded Horse that was in that story. But but no, I always did have the voice. Uh, Virgil is not educated, but he is smart. He right. is rough. You know, he has a softer side. <clears throat> if you continue reading with the book, he is the uh, legal guardian for his 14-year-old nephew because his sister has died. And he cares deeply about the, the child. And, and so I always had, you know, the, the voice in my head. Yes, that, that didn't change uh, much. Just on the margins a little bit, I, I, I did tone him, tone him down just a little bit. Yeah, but again, yeah, I, I could tell he's smart. I mean, the, the language is not, is simple, but is not dumbed down. Um, and he's also very direct. He's going, to, I, I feel like he's going to tell you exactly what he's about and exactly what he wants. And in that way, in that way, I trust him. Um, and I think that's a big deal. We also get um, some Lakota language. I think it's Lakota language. I'm assuming yes. that you don't that you don't define, and you also don't put it in italics, which is my preference. <laughs> I think that readers should just deal with it. <laughs> but I'm wondering if you got any pushback from again your agent or editor or other readers. Readers, yes. So if there's a 
um, a comment that I've gotten. I, I, by the way, I should back up and say that I, I, I truly, truly, truly value readers' comments. I've had hundreds of readers contact me, and it's 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 also nice. Maybe two or three didn't like the book for some reason, you know, and that's fair enough. You know, not everybody likes every book and, and they weren't overtly nasty to me, you know, um, so I truly treasure it. But but if there's a consistent one that I've gotten maybe a dozen times, it's some readers are frustrated <clears throat> by the fact that there's no glossary. So they can't just go to the back of the book and look up the meaning of the word. You know, I, I try to make it clear by the context, but I, I'm not gonna do a glossary. Now, having said that, a friend of mine, Gabino Iglesias, who has a great book that I blurbed. Ah, I'm seeing it right now. There it is, The Devil Takes You Home. Um, he didn't do a glossary, but Book of the Month Club printed up a glossary and included it with, with their version. Yeah. And you know what? That's every publisher's you know decision to make. But I, I am not going to do a glossary unless the editor like says, you must. And then, okay, or you're not going to get paid. Well, okay, in that case, yes. you know, Because um, I, I, I think that it, it, it's fair to trust your reader and if they can get the idea from the context and if they can't they can go to the web and 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 search it um now italics that's not really done anymore for indigenous languages um that's that's out um so there was no like pushback Spanish yeah. languages or languages that i mean normally lots of times spanish these days i feel like we should be able to to get by with without right, right. yeah yeah. Hmm. But you what's interesting. And so I do feel like I base I basically got the sense of what the words meant. Um, and then when you do define a word, it really stands out because you actually do define. Um, and I might mispronounce this. Why can tongue? Why could tongue knocka? What's on Tognaka? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm a, I mispronounce I mispronounce the word bread. I don't even know what happens with my mouth sometimes. But so you do um, define that one of the seven Lakota values. It meant compassion, generosity, kindness, and forgiveness. So that really stands out. It seems like that one was particularly important for you to for people to know. Yeah, I use that technique a number of times throughout the book. If there's something that you really need to make sure that the reader gets it and gets instantly. Then, then I'll say it as as an aside, um, and I, and I think that really drives it home. And as far as the pronunciation, don't worry about it. There are seven different orthographies and pronunciation styles in Lakota. It's a disaster. So we 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 can't uh, agree among ourselves how to spell or pronounce certain words. Anyway, well, that's moving on. I like that. Um, well, English also has different. Um, uh, I also, I remember when I read this the first time, and again, I think, I actually think it was more than two years ago. I remember the lines, the tribal police couldn't do anything about this rape. And and what I also like is that you're not hiding the fact that it was rape. You're not couching that in, in other language. Uh, you're, you're directly saying that this happened. Um, and I think that's just a realistic thing to do. And it's an honest thing to do. But so the tribal police couldn't do anything. The feds prosecuted all felony crimes on the res and they didn't mess with any crime short of murder. I had no idea that that was happening. Um, and that basically makes the whole book. Yeah, so, so probably the reason I mean, there are a number of reasons, I hope. <laughs> Hopefully there's some decent writing in there and dialogue and all that. But I think what this book has done that very few other Native books have done. Now, there are some exceptions. Uh, my friend Louise Erdrich has a book called The Roundhouse that won the National Book Award uh, that did this. But it, it, it brought Indigenous political issues, Winter Counts does, to the forefront. Mm -hmm. um, again, I, I have a PhD. Um, I, I teach, my main gig is I teach Native American studies so I, and political science. So I know these issues from a scholarly perspective, but 
you know, I also teach creative writing as a side gig, you know, but in the book, I bring out the the issues that very few people know, unless you are a legal scholar that specializes in indigenous law, you would not know about the Major Crimes Act, which is the law that I'm highlighting in this book. Um, and so I think the reason the book got some attention is because I did bring up these issues and dramatize them. So instead of a journal article that 15 people have read, you know, I, I don't know what I've heard last, something like 200,000 people have read this book, you know, and but more than that, you know, libraries and all that. And there's been a lot of discussion about this book. In fact, there's been a lawsuit that was recently filed by the Ogallala Sioux tribe. They're our neighbors. And based partially on the discussion, the dialogue that happened around this book and some court cases and other things, they filed a national lawsuit in federal court against the U.S. government stating, you must give us more law enforcement officers. This is part of your duty. Um, Now, I'm very proud of that. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying that my book was the 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 lever that the lever that causes to happen but i think my book helped contribute to a national dialogue on criminal justice on native reservations well here's the good news they were just successful in the lawsuit a judge just ruled in their favor two weeks ago Uh, and now the u.s government has already said they're going to appeal it so they don't think that they have any duty to provide more law enforcement officers and fbi agents on reservations we simply don't have enough uh, my reservation is the size of Delaware, and there are two FBI agents that patrol the entire reservation, and they are responsible for investigating every single felony crime. Well, there are hundreds that happen every month. They can't keep up with it, so they have to decide which are most important. So about half of the time, they say, well, this little kid was abused but not badly raped. We're not going to prosecute that, and so the offender goes free. It's, it's an outrage. And so I think the political side of the book, um, I think, helped um, bring the book to some degree of prominence. I'll stop there. Yeah, no, I think it's important. And it used to be, I mean, when I went to, when I got my MFA, um, it was very frowned upon to write about anything political. And Mm -hmm. the idea was that it would become too didactic or it would become too, and I, in truth, I think it was a way, and, and even the people that espouse these beliefs didn't understand it but I think it was a way of just quieting like pushing these stories aside and not letting them out because you can do it you can write politically vibrant fiction in a dramatic way that actually works I mean you're doing it right here I I have an old a whole article on this so in writer's digest I think 2021 um it's on my website if anybody wants to go to davidwyden.com I have a tab other writing and in 2021 I published an article what was it called writing to change the world techniques techniques for writing social justice in fiction something like that and i actually break down um in nuts and bolts how to write about social justice or political issues in a way that doesn't sound like a tech book textbook or didactic you know there's a way to do it i think without it being too obtrusive and i was always worried that i was doing too much of that so i did pull back on some of the issues in the book. So I there was a whole other issue that was in a first draft about juvenile justice on reservations, but it was just like, this is too much, this is too much. And so I did pull some back, but anybody that's interested, you can read, you can track down my article on this very topic in Writer's Digest. Oh, wonderful. Is it online? I don't think so. I, I mean, you may maybe if you're an online subscriber to it, to my knowledge, no, but the citation is on my website. Sorry, guys. Okay, no, great. We can find it on the website, okay. Um, you know, because I do, I work with uh, students that are a lot of inter- interested and write about these things, and you can sometimes be hitting too many, 
political issues in there where it begins to diffuse the everything um, and the, the whole book and in the, each thing you're talking about. So I think you do have to take care of 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 making choices um, is important. Now, other thing I wanted. So there are some writerly uh, wonderful things that you're doing that show a lot of confidence. I love your use of dialogue. It's mm -hmm. very trim. It's very fast. And you don't use a lot of dialogue tags. Um, you just trust the reader and that we're going to be able to follow the back and forth. So anyone, if you really want to look at smart tight dialogue that's not weighted down by dialogue tags you can look at his first chapter and probably throughout the book too um it can be difficult to write fight scenes because it come kind of becomes a bloody mess <laughs> and we don't stay with the character we get too lost in the violence did you ever did you was that ever a problem for you have you seen it being a problem with other writers no. do you have any advice about that yeah, let me let me back up on dialogue uh, first because this is something that I care a lot about. I I not only do I teach at a couple of MFA programs, but I teach at a, a fair number of writing conferences and such. Um, what am I doing? I'm teaching at Key West in January with Rebecca Mackay and some other folks, um, and and I often do a seminar on dialogue, and and I talk a lot about this. And um, you know, I, I I use minimal dialogue tags, and I don't go as far as some. My friend Craig Johnson who writes the Longmire books, and that's also a TV show, he has zero in all of his 20 books. He never uses a dialogue tag ever. And I didn't believe it. So I went back to some of his books here in my office and he's right. You know, he has never used one. Now that is impressive, okay? Now also look at James Elroy. Elroy will eschew uh, dialogue tags, but I sometimes find his dialogue confusing. I have to go back and I have to trace back. Okay, wait, who said this? Who said this? Who said this? You know, and I don't like that. I my approach, and every every artist has to make their own decision. You know, is use dialogue tags if there's a danger that the reader is going to get lost in who said what. So you just use a quick dialogue tag. Remember, a dialogue tag though can also be used to vary the cadence of a line. Sometimes you need a dialogue tag, obviously, for a pause or for emphasis. So you can use dialogue tags as, you know, for a number of reasons, just whatever you do, um, just say said and asked. I allow my students to have one creative verb like hissed or roared, um, one per book. Now, ironically, and I've been called out on this, um, I have two of those in the first chapter of Winter Counts. So I had a student come back and be like, oh, ha ha, professor, you broke your own rule. Because I wrote this first scene literally 10 years ago before I'd fully thought about, you know, thought through my thinking on dialogue anyway. Um, so those are my thoughts on, on dialogue tags and all that. You know, go to the masters is what I tell my students. If you want to read good dialogue, good dialogue, you know, go to... Um, Go to uh, uh, Elroy, I've already mentioned, some of the others. Once I was taking a workshop, a fairly famous writer whom I won't name, um, I mentioned uh, um, Carver, Raymond Carver, and this particular writer got very angry at me and and started screaming at me uh, as uh, saying that was a bad example. I, I, I still stand by the fact that I think Carver has some great, great dialogue. So anyway. Let me move on to your second thought about fight scenes. Um, I put a lot of work into studying fight scenes. I'm very much a believer, folks, in that writing is both an art and a science, okay? It's a craft. I believe you can study these craft techniques and you have to fuse that with your imagination. That's the art of it and you're, you know, but I believe you can study these things. And so I actually f looked and found 
uh, a couple of art craft articles and craft books on how to write fight scenes. Um, so it didn't come naturally to me. Um, and I read, you know, there's an art to them. You're, there has to be like a defeat in the fight scene, you know, to your protagonist. There has to be like he's nearly defeated, you know, yeah. and then he, then he or she rebounds, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so I studied it craft-wise before I did this. So again, this was just me rolling up my sleeves. And I, that's what I teach my students. I say, look, you know, I don't, in, in my classes, we don't do a lot of this, like we're gonna stimulate your imagination. We study the nuts and bolts. You know, I want my MFA students when they leave my my seminar to have a whole bunch of techniques that they can go out and use when they're building their craft. The imagination has to come from them. Um, now, about fight scenes in general, my friend Ben Percy has a great craft book that I have all my students read called Thrill Me. Yeah, I see you smiling. I see you smiling. It's great. And Ben says, and I think he's right here, that sometimes you don't want to show the violence okay sometimes you don't want to do that and i think that's a really really valid technique that you know sometimes i mean i think Cormac mccarthy does this as well he's on my mind because i was just interviewed by a major newspaper yesterday about his death um and um, um you know so sometimes you know just turning the camera away from the violence is effective but other times you want to show it i just turn my head and i'm seeing gabino iglesias's book uh the devil takes you home I don't want to give away any spoilers here, but there's a scene in there. Ugh, it makes me uncomfortable to even talk about it, where they have to go to a child who's kept in a basement. And whenever anybody wants good luck, they have some shearers and they have to cut off little portions of the child's fingers or toes or skin. And that's how you guarantee that you'll have good luck in your quest. Mm. And, and he does not turn the camera away. And as I read it, that scene seared itself into my memory, okay? Yeah. And, and I, it, it was a lot, okay? It was a lot. I mean, that's a bold choice that he made. Now, a lot of writers, myself included, probably would have turned the camera away, but Gabino said, uh-uh, I'm, I'm gonna show you this horrifying thing. So, you know, there are a, a, a different, you know, there are a, a lot of choices you can make if you're writing fight scenes or violent or disturbing scenes. So I'll stop there. Um, I, I interviewed Amina Gautier um, and her, her first short story in her collection, Lost and Found. And so that's part of our first pages, too. I'm doing short stories, too. Mm. It's about a child who has been um, uh, stolen from his family and is being sexually abused by um, the man that does it. And, and she insists on because she doesn't want anyone reading it to in any way enjoy yeah. <laughs> what is happening. So the way that she just hints at the sexual abuse, which sadly we can fill in for ourselves, is very, very smartly done. So I think it's useful to look at both sides of this, both both um, extremes, and then find that that in-between place that, that you're most comfortable with. And that carries across your belief system as well. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Um, Okay, folks, everyone, I'm, David, I'm going to have to let you go. I feel like we oh. could talk like another <laughs> half hour, but um, everyone grab this book. And uh, I think it would be very great for your own writing process. You know, what I also recommend is when you're really trying to get, so, so like with David's dialogue or the fight scene, I always recommend transcribing a passage by 
hand onto an actual piece of paper, not just typing it in, because then you can get the rhythms in it. You can get the feeling of it. It's kind of in your hand as you work. It can be very inspiring. So I think David's might be very helpful with that. So everyone, you can find our full uh, schedule on the Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges. And you can find all of those episodes on your favorite podcast platforms as well. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so that we can reach other listeners. Okay, David, what advice would you give to authors about their own first pages? And you can do that in general or even for crime and um, mystery fiction, if you wish. Sure. Well, uh, I'll answer that. But, you know, first, let me just say thank you again for having me on and thank you to all viewers and listeners. It's It's been wonderful to kind of chat about craft stuff, which is what I love. Uh, and for those of you who have read Winter Counts, thank you for your support. There is a, another novel coming. I'm writing a sequel right now and it's coming. It's called Wisdom Corner. And I have a bunch of short stories as well. One was just in Best American Mystery and Suspense 2022. That has the character from this book doing something new about a year after the events of this book. So there are other Virgil tales out there. Um, Anyway, um, let me turn to the um, the question here. What would I, what advice would I give to writers about their first pages? Okay, I have a very very strong recommendation here, uh, because I deal, I teach a lot of emerging writers, and they often want to do what I call throat clearing. Okay, in their first pages, they want to spend all of this time setting everything up, describing you know the characters, describing everything, the conflict, the, the backstory, and all that you know, throat clearing, throat clearing, and then maybe 20 pages, 15, 40, then they get to the actual conflict and the event. Okay, you cannot do that. You must trust your reader. You have, if you want to get published, you have got to hook an agent, an editor, and a reader in the first pages, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that you have to have a a fight scene like mine, but you have got to trust your reader and grab them right away. Give us something on the first 10 pages that really sizzles. Because just as a matter of practicality, if you're querying an agent or an editor, they're not going to read your entire manuscript. If they read the first 10, 15, 20, and it's slow and turgid, they're done. All right. You have got to hook the reader, whatever that conflict is. Maybe it's an emotional conflict, an internal conflict, maybe a physical conflict. Hook them right away. You can load in enough, just enough backstory so that there is an understanding. I did that in when, in the first five pages that I read. I gave just enough backstory so the reader knows who we're talking about, you know, but then a couple chapters in, then I get into some real backstory. Don't do the backstory right away. Okay, you're going to lose your reader. So, so hook the reader with your first pages. If you remember nothing else from our talk today, please, please let that be the takeaway. Um, And I think writers do that because they are still learning their own story. So basically what they're doing is telling themselves the story. (laughs) Um, And the sad thing is that they forget to take it out. Like, no, your first page is actually on page 100. Um, Okay, you learn the story in your process. Now you need to back up and revise and cut. Um, And but I I do think it's a human thing to do, but you got to knock it out of there. (laughs) Right. <laughs> All right, David, thank you so much for spending your time with us. I think this is going to be wonderfully helpful for everyone and I think inspiring for their own, not just first pages, but for their full books. Have a wonderful writing day. Thank you. Bye bye.